Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. to another exciting episode of Nightlight. Merle Feinkhauser was a guest over three years ago. It's been way too long. Um, but he's he's here with us tonight to uh, give us some updates, and uh, we'll be discussing Merle's music being used in movies and some TV uh, new TV shows, but more importantly, uh, the unsettling global events has caused Merle to use his music to bring about peace. Uh, Merle is a pioneer in instrumental surf rock. His Wipeout is the most renowned example. He has dozens of CDs spanning the last six decades. His Acclaimed autobiography is entitled Calling from a Star. He is the most or he is the host of the long running Tiki Lounge TV show. Merle has his own radio show on KYXZ on Friday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, and you can learn more about him by going to his website, MerleFankhauser.com. Hi, Merle. How are you? Good. Good evening. Nice to talk to you again, Mark. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Last last time you were on, we had that uh, Joanne was a guest on a Sunday afternoon uh, talking about putting together the Eclectia CD, then you were on, I think, Tuesday, then Arlen was, my friend Arlen, uh, was a friend Wednesday after, uh, Wednesday afternoon, so we had like uh, three music shows within four days, so <laughs> that was a really interesting mid-February trying to end the winter blues type uh, 
show three years ago. It's been way too long since you've been here, but we're we're glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here also. And yeah, that was a good show we did with Joanne Summerscales, the yep. producer from the UK who produced the U Eclectia album mm-hmm. that had all groups on it that either had had some sort of a UFO experience or felt that their music was actually inspired by UFOs and ETs. And that album did fairly well, and uh, I got it on a lot of radio stations out here in California. That was a fun project. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and the... Cover is you know, um, it's unique. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> paying homage to the Sergeant Pepper <clears throat> uh, cover, and you know, there's everyone, all big names, um, who um, you know. Uh, have influenced ufology. Yeah, there's a lot of ufologists on there, famous people who have studied ufology and and written books about it and a lot of rock stars and yep. I'm I'm up in the left-hand corner uh near Neil Young and David Bowie. <laughs> yeah, they're there you are, and Sammy Hagar is not too far away. And I, Mark, lots. what I really liked though was how <laughs> down where the Beatles were standing. You know, on the Sergeant Pepper's album, they have three uh, gray aliens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there, there they are, right, right there in the front row, and uh, you know, Betty and Barney Hill are there. We'll be talking with uh, Kathleen Martin next month or so. So I, some of the people that we deal with on, on Nightlight is somehow connected to that very intriguing album cover. Really, ah, really great. like it. So, yeah. And Good. so... Um, yeah, you. What is the background story of the song uh, "Peace in the World" that you want want to get out there to the public? Well, I actually wrote the song in the mid seventies, and it's uh, there again. It was problems, you know, with. Uh, Russia and then coming out of the Vietnam War and I wrote the song then as a heartfelt feeling telling all of these world leaders that just wanted to you know start wars isn't it time we all just stood up and took a bow and end this and let's have peace on earth everlasting and I wrote those words in the melody, Mark, and never got around to recording it. I was playing with the band Moo then, and we had mm-hmm. a whole, uh, you know, two albums worth of songs we were trying to put out, and it's one that just got 
set on the shelf, and I didn't re- record it till 1986. I was living on Maui then, and I came over here as I did every other year and played concerts and did my recordings. And I was in the studio uh, with some studio musicians, and Mary Lee was there with me, the violinist from Mm -hmm. the 76 Maui album. And I said, oh, what about this one? And she said, oh, yes, it's such a lovely song and such a great message. And the Message to the Universe album came out on vinyl in 1986, and I don't know if you have that cover or not, Mark, but it's interesting. It kind of goes along with the cover you were just talking about. Uh, An artist did a painting. He came out and took a picture of me on the hill above my cabin on Maui, and people for years were always saying they were seeing UFOs flying in in and out of the crater there. And so I told the artist, I said, make me playing with a little band of aliens, put them down here below me. And he did such a good job on that cover. The cover ended up, the painting sold for quite a bit, and it was at a bunch of exhibits uh, in Hawaii. So that's 1986, and the album came out. Sold fairly well, got some good airplay, had a lot of kind of space genre songs on it. And everybody, of course, loved the Peace in the World song, and they took it up kind of as a hippie anthem, you know, against war. So flash forward to 2011, a label that I'm on in San Francisco, Global Recording Artists, They heard the album and thought it was great, and so they wanted to put it out on CD, and it had never been out on CD. So they put it out on CD, and it started selling well, and they got it on some radio stations. And now, flash forward here to 2022, DJs, found that CD, and one in particular on the East Coast heard Peace in the World, a song on it, and several of them thought, this is a perfect song that tells a story of what's happening now and people having to leave their homeland. And, uh, you know, these ruthless dictator leaders that are just it's terrible what they're doing you know just killing innocent people (laughs) women and and babies so it, it started getting play on the east coast first and then all of a sudden everybody started looking for it the record company started getting requests for the cd and then they sent it out to their I think 750 radio contacts. I got an MP3, and people started requesting it from me. So I started sending it to DJs all over. And because I have 
so much airplay in Europe, in Greece, Spain, a lot in Germany, a lot in the UK, Austria, uh, Poland, Hungary, and uh, I've even had a lot of play in Russia. So all of a sudden it took off over there and it's on two radio stations in Poland right now. And the latest tabulation was is that the song Peace in the World is on over 1,500 stations worldwide. Uh, uh, that's uh, quite an honor. Yeah, and, and it's just amazing to me, Mark, how the song kind of did it itself. And thank God for these DJs that remembered the song I think one of them even had the original vinyl album from 1986, and he played played it off the vinyl album. And it's getting played here in California. I'm hearing it like six times a day on various stations. That's great. Okay. Um, how about if we uh, play it, listeners can hit, hit. You know, hear the song, and we'll uh, continue talking about it on the other side. Good idea. Let's play Peace in the World. This is Merle Fankhauser. I'm sending out a special prayer in song to the people of Ukraine and everyone on Earth. From my Message to the Universe album, here is Peace in the World.
I can see why that is becoming such a popular song. Yeah, Mark, when I listened to it after not hearing it since, oh, 2011, I went, oh, my gosh. And two DJs, uh, one from Northern California that's been playing it nonstop, said, Merle, did you ever think this was some kind of a prophecy that you had? And I said, no, I didn't think that. But now when I listen to it, I'm going, my gosh, uh, you know, this is like God sent or something. It's it's really amazing. I, You know, I'm outside of it like somebody else wrote it, and it, it gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Um... You have, uh, you were uh, interviewed by a Hungarian author uh, about the song uh, as being played on a couple uh, uh, Polish uh, radio stations. So, you know, you're in that Eastern European. Uh, you have an influence there in the Eastern European region where all these uh, atrocities are happening. So, uh, you know, you, you know there, there is some kind of connection you have to that area, or you know, you're connecting with the people as well. Um, you, 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 what was the Hungarian author's uh, interest in contacting you for your views of these unfortunate events? Well, I've known him, uh, Belent Miko. Uh, he writes for a music magazine there for years in Hungary, and it's interestingly called Old Time Rock and Roll. And um, he's done interviews on me uh, about my playing with Nicky Hopkins, a piano mm-hmm. player, and a lot of other people. And when this started happening, he got a hold of me and said, we've got to do uh, you know, a feature article for this. And he put it online and also in the magazine in Hungary and Hungarian. And... Uh, you know, he he knew that uh, there were DJs in 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 Poland that I'm kind of friends with because they've been playing my stuff for so many years, and they just jumped right on it, and they're playing it over there two stations. You know, so it's it's an honor to you know be able to do this and have people understand, you know, what I'm communicating in the song and how I feel for the people of, of Ukraine. Yeah, I, I, that that's, uh, was one of the questions, and I was trying to figure out how to phrase it. I, like, you and so many of your friends, you know, you, you just mentioned, uh, Nikki, all of you grew up in that 60s peace movement, 
Um, you know, what made what you did so long ago uh, timeless? You know, here it is coming back again with the need to say something about we don't like what's going on and you know certain songs become you know, like an anthem for that kind of movement but and it's also music uh connects people how does that phenomenon work even though you know, you know Polish people may not be fluent in English but there's something that you're doing that resonates with uh, them if they don't understand the words uh, fully are, are, are they uh, connecting more through just the music? How, well there's more people there uh, that do speak English and understand enough and mm-hmm. actually you got to remember too that all of these countries were big Beatles fans when the Beatles came oh, okay. out. And the fact that they were singing in Eng- English, uh, some of them that didn't even know how to speak English started mimicking the words of the Beatles <laughs> songs. And where music comes from, Mark, is a big mystery. I think I told you once, I met John Lennon at Harry Nelson's house. Harry and I were friends for years in Hollywood when they were hanging out together for a while. And John and I got in a conversation about songs. And he said, isn't it weird where a song will come from and you never know what's going to inspire a song? And if somebody talks to you or you hear another piece of music, it like erases it from your mind. And I told him, I said, I understand totally, and my best songs are written in 15 minutes, and it's almost like somebody else is writing them. And then he said a really funny thing. He said, well, Merle, I didn't write any of those songs in the Beatles. And I went, what? And he said, my muse gave them to me. And I said, exactly. I said, that's... That's what it's like. It's like you hear the thing finished in your head. You got to write it down as fast as you can, record it, and then learn how to play it either on the guitar or the piano. And he looked at me and he said something that resonated with me, Mark, that I think of every time. He called it automatic writing. (laughs) So you never know when automatic writing is going to strike. And now Mm -hmm. I've got over 50 albums out and over 450 songs published. And all of these songs from the 60s up to, oh gosh, the newer, some of the newer songs are getting in movies and and on TV shows. Well, yeah, we're going to get to uh, some of the TV shows here in a uh, second, but it, yeah, it's just really uh, amazing about the global reach of uh, your music or uh, you know, just 
name any uh, one of your friends. I, you know, they've, uh, you know, you've met Keith Richards. Uh, you know, he's basically responsible for, you know, li- literally the soundtrack of everyone's uh, life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been lucky that, uh, you know, from even back in the late 60s and 70s, uh, first the British really picked up on me, and I got, you know, labels that I was on here in Los Angeles made licensing deals with labels in England and Germany and a lot of different countries. So, you know, even my late 60s stuff, I didn't, you know have an impact like the Beatles or anything. And uh, they just started putting my stuff out, and they still do now. And back then they they called me a cult legend, and now they just shortened it to a legend. And I'm just honored and, and so thankful for everything and being able to still, you know, make music and have people like it and labels release it. Okay. So, um, you know, Lila is from a much earlier album, and that's more of a, a 60s. Uh, which one's that on? Fapridocally. Yeah, Lila uh, was a song I wrote in 1965. And at that time, I was living up in the the high desert of California because my dad uh, took over a flight school there. My dad was a flight instructor. And uh, I left my surf band, the Impacts, here in Pismo Beach. And there we were in the middle of the desert, you know. And I thought, oh, gosh, no ocean, no surfing. What am I doing here? So I was practicing my guitar in the airplane hangar one day, and a man that worked there on the airport heard me, and he said, oh, my son's learning to play the guitar. Why don't you come in town and play with him? Maybe you could show him some things. And I was so ready to play with somebody, Mark, because I'd been out there for months, you know, and left my band here. So I go in town, and lo and behold, there is 14-year-old Jeff Cotton, the guitar player that played with me and Moo and had joined Captain Beefheart's band also. But this is way before any of that happened. So I sat down and started teaching him my surf songs and then the new songs that I was writing. So a record company heard us playing at a concert there and took us in their studio in Palmdale. And we just started writing all these new vocals that I was doing. And the song Lila, which was kind of a folk rock song, uh, was one of the ones. And they put out about three singles on us. Uh, Glenn Records did. And they were more, oh gosh, like your typical 60s pop rock songs, you know. But Mm -hmm. Lila had this other feeling, like it really was 
a beacon of what was to come. It sounded like uh, a folk rock group like the Birds or even a little like the Jefferson Airplane. And when we recorded that, uh, the engineer just went crazy. He went, oh, that's a stone smash. So we kept recording all these songs, and then by 1967, they had two shelves full of songs because they couldn't put them all out on 45s. So the owner of the record company decided to put an album out on us, and he just uh, picked songs randomly from the different years, from 1964 up to 1967, and put them together on an album, went to L.A., had them mastered and pressed up. And I'd, it, the band was called Merle and the Exiles. And, and I said, oh, no, that sounds too old hat. It sounds like Tommy James and the Shondells or something. Uh-huh. It, this is 1967. We're in the psychedelic era now. We need something different. So what I did, I took each person's last name in the first two letters of their last name. F.A. for Fankhauser, our bass player at that time, was Parrish. So I took P.A.R. The other guitar player was Bill Dodd. So I took D.O. for Dodd. And then the drummer was Dick Lee, so I took K-L-Y, and I came up with Sapper Dockley. And uh, everybody thought it was so different and so original. Uh, That was the album, and the album, Mark, has become one of the most sought-after collectible vinyls from the 1960s, and I was astounded how the price of one of those albums kept going up. And in the 70s, it really shot up. And by, oh gosh, 1985, it was worth a 1000 a copy sealed. And now it's worth $1,500 a copy. And a person in Australia, a disc jockey that interviewed me, first told me that about three years ago and now people are asking me for that original album and uh, I had 25 from the record company you know that they gave me and those ended up selling and then when they closed up the studio in Palmdale uh, the owner came over and I bought some more copies that he had and I have just a few more Left, but it's amazing, Mark, how so many songs from that album have gotten in movies. And Lila itself was in the 2018 Chappaquiddick movie about Ted Kennedy. And then in 2020, they used the song Lila again in the award winning movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. And recently, the TV show, In the Dark. They used it in that. So um, this is a wonderful financial, uh, you know, boom. 
yeah, for me because the band and I now, my band, we haven't played a live show in two years because of COVID. And uh, my bass player got COVID and his wife. And so everybody's being real careful, but we're hoping uh, by this summer, you know, I have the set in the Tiki Lounge that my TV show that's been on for 20 years in California and Hawaii, and it was on in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Long Island for quite a few years. Uh, We're hoping this summer it'll be open enough that everybody, because we have an audience and a big stage here on my back lot that will be able to perform and start filming new shows. And we've had everybody from Willie Nelson to Canned Heat, Starship, lots of different, you know, people, a lot of 60s musicians on the show. Okay. Well, um, you know, Barbara, let's get Lila ready to play and see what's or hear hear what uh all these TV shows and movies have and why they've wanted to play this song
That was terrific. And it does have that uh, four shadows or uh, always say uh, has that uh, mid-60s sound to it with the harmonies. Yeah, and the acoustic 12 string I was playing on that too gives it that feeling, you know, and that's the same kind of uh, instruments that uh, the Birds and Bob Dylan both used. It was a 12-string guitar. Wow, okay. And uh, Tomorrow's Girl was on the same... Yes, Mark, it, it was on the same album, and that's what gets me. There's so many songs from that album now that are in movies and TV shows, and they're popular. And Tomorrow's Girl was released in 1967 as a 45 a single. You remember those little 45s? Those oh, little I... I I, I, I had a few of those when I was about eight or, eight or nine, yeah. Uh-huh. So anyhow, it got on a lot of radio stations all across the country and in Europe. And that was the first song that we knew of that actually got played in Europe. And it was, I got, I still have charts from all over, from Indiana and Kentucky and uh, actually from West Virginia, too. And uh, it got on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. And Dick Clark used to have this little contest they would do called the Raider Record Contest. And they would play a 45, and then the audience would rate it, and then they'd play the next 45. They'd do this with two 45s, and they would rate it again. Well, Tomorrow's Girl ended up winning the Rate a Record contest on Dick Clark's American Bandstand in 1967. And uh, that, that, that was really something then, you know. And then... Uh, that kind of got us into the L.A. Sunset Strip, uh, you know, club uh, gigs down there. And it got us on some of the popular television shows that were in Los Angeles at the time. Sam Riddle's Ninth Street West and... And Real Don Steele, we had one called Boss City, and we ended up in all of these shows. Well, flash forward <laughs> to 2021, and all of a sudden, Tomorrow's Girl, at the end of 2021, got into the TV show that's on now called Roswell, New Mexico. And uh, I have two agents in L.A. now that do nothing but get my songs, uh, their sync agents, in TV and movies. And I have uh, an agency in New York that's doing that for me, too. So I have three agents, and they're having a grand old time, you know, uh, making these deals. 
But there again, Mark, it just amazes me how so many songs from that particular album, you know, there there's been other ones that have been in in different TV shows. There's just so many. It's hard to mention them all, but other TV shows that I've had songs in, uh, my song Only a Woman from the 1989 Back This Way Again album was in the kids' show called Young Sheldon. Have you ever seen that? I have not. Oh, gosh, it's about this genius young kid, and I'm hooked on it now. So Only a Woman was in that. And then my 1990 song is Love and Illusion was in the Netflix series Brand New Cherry Flavor. And that did really well. And what I didn't realize, Mark, was not only am I getting paid for it, you know, a fee for it being in a TV or a movie when it's played on Netflix and these other networks, I get an airplay royalty, just like you would, you know, on the radio for a song. But it's much, much more. And coming up, uh, my 1968 song, Things, which was a hit in 68 with Merle in the HMS Bounty. And that album was on Uni Records, and it's a big collector's item now. And it's going to be in the TV show Riverdale. And there's just several more in the works. I mean, I would use up all of our time here talking about all of them, but I counted up so far just in the last four years, I've had 26 songs in either movies or TV shows. So uh, that's a an astonishing uh contribution you made to American pop culture what what do you other than you know, your your and John Lennon's muses it, it, how do you go about approaching writing a song that has remained so popular over all these decades and pe- you know people were and it's, you know basically like you know it's, it's so old it's new and it's finding uh new, new listeners, listeners. Yeah. yeah mark it like i said uh it's a mystery and it's a it was a mystery to john lennon when i talked to him too and uh i you know, I get this feeling that comes over me, and I go, uh-oh, something's coming through, and I either <laughs> got to go in my studio and shut the door, or I could be out somewhere and get this idea, you know. But it's almost like a song is in my mind, and I hear it playing. And it's been frustrating before because I've been in the car, and maybe I was just shopping or coming back from something 
and I'll start hearing a song, and i got to try to get home as fast as I can. And I used to, in the older days, and especially in Maui, I kept a cassette player next to my bed all the time because mm-hmm. I would wake up in the middle of the night with a song. And one night uh, I was in uh, my cabin on Maui that had a stream and, and a waterfall up the stream, and you could hear it trickling by. I was in bed, and I was asleep, and I woke up and heard the stream. I picked up my guitar. I didn't even have a light on, and I didn't know what chords I was playing. I started out in some kind of a G-diminished form, and Mary Lee was there. She woke up, and she said, what is that? And I started singing this song, Waterfall, oh my waterfall. She picked up a piece of paper, turned on a kerosene lantern, started writing the lyrics down for me in the notation because she was a classically trained violinist. And we flipped on uh, the the cassette tape recorder but the batteries were dead and I went oh no we're going to lose it and she was going we can't lose this what are we going to do well it was starting to get light and we jumped in the the car and we had to drive about 18 miles because we lived out in the rainforest at that period and I knew a guy that got up real early Sammy Buell and went surfing, and he had a reel-to-reel tape recorder in his house. I ran in, and I said, Sammy, I got a song. I don't want to forget it. Can I record it? And he goes, yeah, there's a fresh reel on there. (laughs) And we went in and recorded it, and uh, it was just amazing. And that song, Waterfall, ended up on our 76 Maui album. And uh, actually... Uh, At one point, I had an audition with Dark Horse Records around 75, and uh, George Harrison's uh, producer and president of his Dark Horse Records company in L.A. took us in the studio and recorded a whole bunch of songs like Waterfall, uh, that I had written for the album, and he started that album. And at one point, uh, George was even going to play slide guitar on On Our Way to Hana, but uh, that never materialized, and uh, the album came out. And, uh, you know, that's just an example of how a song can come and you don't even know it's going to come out. Okay. It's a gift. That's all I can say. It's a gift. I've been on paranormal shows before and they try to say, oh, the aliens are giving that to you. Well, no, I can't say that the aliens are giving it to me, but it's coming from somewhere. Okay. uh, Since you just mentioned on our way to Hana, um, Why don't do, we go back and play Tomorrow's Girl? Oh, uh, uh, okay. Yeah, so so we don't. I was just getting too oh. too wrapped. <laughs> okay, uh, let, let, let's do. 
from 1967, Tomorrow's Girl, from the famous Fapper Dockley album. about this girl uh, 
while she sits and smokes her $20 weed. Did you Mm -hmm. catch that line? Yeah. Well, here we are, you know, back then singing this on television, and it's playing on the radio, and I don't know if nobody ever really caught the meaning of it, that we were talking about marijuana, but it was never censored. It it got, oh, it, it got on charts everywhere. Uh, I, it was even in the bubbling under the Hot 100 and Billboard magazine, and everybody was sure it was going to be a million seller, and it it got us a lot of gigs and a lot of, uh, you know, television appearances up and down the coast here in California and in L.A. And it really is, uh, you can hear that sound, you know. It mm-hmm. was kind of a precursor to the doors in a mm-hmm. way. And it, it has that sound in it, and we didn't even know that and one time we were playing at the whiskey a go-go on uh, sunset strip in la and it was packed and somebody came up and said hey play light my fire well that was the door's first hit Uh and we we never heard the song it was only getting played on a few radio stations and Bill, the other guitar player, looked at me, and we're both going, light my fire, what's that? And Bill said, oh, it's something they're making up about uh, smoking a joint or something. And then a few weeks later, we heard it on the radio. And I I didn't meet uh, Morrison, but I ate, met, met, gosh, I can't talk. I met uh, Ray Manzarak, and we became good friends and actually here just not too long ago uh it's been a few years now i interviewed ray on uh my radio show and, and that was interesting that <laughs> you know he re- he remembered us from back then too yeah I, all all the interviews i've seen with ray he seems to uh have some very clear recollections of you know the the recordings or certain concerts and he he was just a great storyteller yeah and a great keyboardist too oh yeah yeah oh and i interviewed uh on my my uh tv show oh gosh it's been I don't know how many years now, maybe 15 years ago on Tiki Lounge. By the way, there are some Tiki Lounge TV shows on YouTube. If you go type in Merle Fankhauser's Tiki Lounge, you can see them. But I interviewed Mars Bonfire that wrote Born to be Wild. And we were talking, he was talking about all these sessions, you know, and, and, uh, playing with Steppenwolf and, you know, and then he did this solo album, Mars Bonfire. And um, I said, well, Mars, what was that album called? And he looked at me and it's on camera. There's even that interview is on YouTube. If you 
type in Merle Fankhauser interview Mars Bonfire, he looked at me, Mark, and he went, I can't remember what it was called. <laughs> and I said, well, that's typical of the 60s. <laughs> yeah, and I interviewed him down here at the beach, right here at Pismo Beach. You, you ought to check that interview out sometime. It's on oh, YouTube. It's, okay, it's, I I just wrote it down. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure uh, Rick had or had some really good uh, stories. You know, to tell on, uh, and you know, Robbie's autobiography came out recently. Uh, I'm sure that's uh, a fascinating read as well. Yeah. Oh, and another thing I'd like to mention and give a plug uh, a movie producer from UK, from England, from London, contacted me a month and a half or so ago, and they're doing a documentary tribute movie to my good friend and great keyboardist, bless his heart, Nicky Hopkins. And uh, they're going to use a song that I wrote to Nicky after he passed called Nicky's Song. They're going to use it in the movie. And then I I had an interview when I had Nicky on my TV show back in 1991, uh, that was before Tiki Lounge. I was doing California music then that was on a satellite network. And uh, we jammed live without any rehearsal at the TV station. And we had uh, Roger Caps of Pat Benatar's band on bass. And we just had the greatest time playing together. And that was the first day that we met. And I interviewed him, and uh, we went through all of these songs, Mark, without rehearsing at all. And it sounded like we'd been playing together all of our lives. Well, Nikki and I hit it off so well, we just became fast friends. And uh, I took him in the recording studio, and he's recording on this beautiful song called Queen Moo. It's on my return to Moo album that mm-hmm. didn't didn't come out till 2000, and uh, that was one of the songs. Another one that was on the shelf for a while, and Nikki just did this beautiful piano solo on it. And then we did a sold out concert at a big auditorium here on the Central California coast in Pismo Beach. And um, so they're going to use some of those clips in this movie that they're working on right now. So look for that, the uh, Nicky Hopkins story. It'll be a documentary movie on him, and he he deserves it. That was so sad for me when he passed away in 94, and he and his wife would stay at my house here in Arroyo Grande on the central coast uh, even when he wasn't playing with me when he was just passing through to do some other uh, recording session or something I mean uh, 
his, you know, discography of all the people he played with is like, you know, everybody from the 60s and 70s you can think of, and even Willie Nelson. Oh, really? Yeah. He played on uh, For All the Girls I Loved Before with Willie Nelson and Julio Iglesias when they did that duo. In fact, Nicky did a lot of the the arranging for that song. And uh when I played with Willie on Maui, he he remembered that session and just how great Nicky was. He just said it, the man was like an orchestra himself, you know. And uh yeah, Nicky was really something. I I it was such an honor and a privilege to meet him and get to play with him and have him record on some of my music. Yeah, and um, Nikki's song appears on your On the Blue Road CD, and you, you have uh, Pete Sears playing the the. Yeah, Pete, Pete Sears from the Starship played the piano on it, and he did such a wonderful job on it because, you know, Nicky was a friend of his, too, we, and uh, I was so glad to get Pete to to play on that, and I had Pete on my TV show also, and, um, you know, it's just amazing and the album that it ended up on was the album I did with drummer from Spirit the band Ed Cassidy who was a longtime friend of mine and I lost him too in 2012 he passed away but we did two albums together on the blue road and further on up the road and uh, those were both out on D-Town Records, and then some uh, foreign labels picked them up also. And, um, yeah, gosh, what a well, time. But you you know all of this, Mark. That's amazing. You Yeah, I, I have this uh, CD's liner notes uh, opened up in front of me. Uh-huh. But 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 there would be the um, well uh, Pete and Nikki would have the Jefferson Airplane Starship uh, connection and you know that goes uh, Nikki played with the airplane at Woodstock. Grace introduces him on stage. Yeah, it's amazing. Like I said. All of the people that he played with that were in famous bands in the 60s and 70s, you know, from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones. And then, like I mentioned, even Willie Nelson. I never knew that, you know. I didn't know it either until you just said it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm sure um, everyone's going to be uh, looking at that song Hopefully after the show's, show's over, but uh, I, I I did not uh, know Nikki did that uh, uh, appeared on that song too, and you know, he's on the Jeff Beck group's first 
couple CDs. Right, and he played some with uh, John Cipollina from Quicksilver that was also on my Dr. Fankhauser album. And they, you know, I, Somebody I, I, did a, a pyramid tree, Mark. I should send you that sometime. Of all the people that we've all connected to and how we're all connected, we've all played with, gosh, I, I don't know how many people it was. It was a big, big, huge list of all of the people that we all played together with at some time or another, you know. Mm -hmm. Maybe not not all of us at the same time, but each one of us had played with Mm -hmm. one of the same people. Yeah, I I, I think that's what's interesting about reading, um, you know, the liner notes that – might come with your CDs or anyone else's. They, you know, uh, you know, you look at your uh, the man from Moo and you know Jay Ferguson on there. Is, is he the one that did Thunder Island? That's right. He was in JoJo Gun, and he also did Thunder Island. And, uh, you know, he was the main keyboardist and one of the singers in Spirit, along with Randy California and John mm-hmm. Locke on keyboards and, of course, Ed Cassidy on drums, fabulous drummer. And Jay actually played some keyboard on my Return to Move album also that was produced by William E. McEwen, I called him Bill, and, you know, Bill discovered uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. His brother is in the band, John McEwen, and he produced the Allman Brothers, and he produced me, and he did a lot of movies, and sorry to say, just not even two years ago, he passed away. So... well, I was going to say, Bill also discovered Steve Martin. Yes. Where would, uh, like, Saturday Night Live wouldn't be what it, the legend it, it became without Steve Martin. That's right. And uh, he also, some people don't know this, he discovered the other zany comedian, uh, Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens. Oh, we're. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he produced that movie, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, he, and I yeah. had a wonderful time recording at Bill's studio down in Carpinteria, which is near Santa Barbara. He had this huge studio there with a beautiful 48-channel Neve mixing board, which is, you know, the best you can get, and a huge room because he did a lot of orchestra recording there for his movies that he did and I got to do those two albums there in his studio and his brother told me that he liked uh, William Bill McEwen liked recording with me and recording my songs so much he didn't want to stop and we stopped in the 90s 
and he wanted to keep going and do three albums, and I wanted to hurry up and get one of them out because he was just so meticulous, and his ideas were so great. I would have to liken him to a George Martin or something, you know. And uh, we finished the album. We started it in about 92, and then I was on a touring schedule and doing TV, so some months we would have to take off. But we finally finished the album, the first album, around the end of 98, and then uh, we got it out in 2000, and it was released on the New York Sundays label, sold good, and then a Japanese label picked it up. Captain Trip and it took off in Japan and they distributed it all over and then it ended up on uh, a German label Lance Records and they even put a vinyl version out and then here in the 2000s uh, uh, Gonzo Multimedia that's put out four or five of my things in London put it out so it's it's done really well and got a lot of exposure and i don't know if i don't remember if you have that one return to moo or not but bill did mm-hmm. all of the designing of the booklet mm-hmm. and the, the artwork in it and it's just really something mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i really like that and, and that was one of uh you know i was uh starting to go on a tangent, you uh, uh, so you know, can't skip skip over tomorrow's girl. But it, it you know, the uh, song on our way to Hana f- from Return to Moo, uh, that it does have the line, uh, two silver saucers appeared it, on the it, horizon. Yeah, right, and that was a true story. Yeah, okay, and, and it's so much of that CD has Hawaiian folklore and, and mythology, and you know, a Pacific Island uh, imagery, um, and also in uh, on our way to Hana, you have the line, uh, it's a place we've seen in our dreams. When you've spoken about automatic writing and uh, dream prophecy, UFOs, um, is that almost like uh, in a devil's tower uh, appearing in Close Encounters of the Third? Uh, kind and you know, it starts taking the shape of uh, you know, R- Richard Dreyfus uh, making the mound of mashed potatoes and you know, he starts carving away uh, some of it to make that shape. It, it or have you had uh, experiences uh, akin to what 
Richard Dreyfus was experiencing in those early stages of close encounters? Well, yeah, in a way. Uh, it goes way back to when I was young, and my dad taught me to fly in a Piper Cub on this little airport at a place called Lake Elsinore, and he ran this glider port there for a while where he towed gliders up, and I got to solo in a Schweitzer 126 glider when I was 14 years old because you could fly in a glider if once you had the instruction at only age 14, you know, if the instructor wow. wrote you and and gave you the certificate and said, okay, you're good to fly. And I took a lot of instruction in a two-place glider, and my dad would tow these gliders up to altitude in this area, Lake Elsinore. It had a dry lake bed, and the ocean air would come in there and hit this hot, dry lake bed, and the updrafts were so strong there, uh, the pilots would laugh. They said, you could throw the kitchen sink out there, and it would try to fly. Everything wanted to go up. And I just got so enthralled with that. I was totally into aviation and flying. And and then he taught me to fly the powered, little powered Piper J3 Cub that we had there. And then I started taking glider instruction and uh, ended up soloing a, soloing in a glider. Well, we would sit out at night, and this was an area, Mark, where it's remote. Uh-huh. And, and my dad and I would sit out by the airplane hangar, and we had a little house on the airport there, and we lived there. And he would give flight instruction during the week and tow the gliders on the weekend. And uh, I would sit outside with him at night, and I'd go, Daddy, do you really think there, there's, you know, flying saucers and uh, other beings out there? And he said, oh, yeah. He said it would be too, uh, you know, egotistical of us to think that we were the only ones in the universe. He said, I'm sure there's somebody out there. And that kind of stuck with me. And I remember that from, you know, being 14 years old. And um, it just kept going from there. I kept reading every book that I could find about UFOs and and then, like you mentioned, Betty and Barney Hill and, uh-huh. and all these other different people, you know, that had sightings. And um, I was always looking for a UFO. And back then, though, when I was young like that, I didn't see any. But I just had this feeling. And I met another kid at the little... Uh, high school there in in, uh, Lake Elsinore. It was a magical place, Mark. A lot of movie stars, there were hot springs there. And they would have 
little houses or they'd go and stay in these spas there. And I remember once I met this real pretty blonde lady, and she was older than me, and I was going, oh, my gosh, who is that? And somebody said, you don't know who that is? And I said, no. And they said, that's the movie star, Kim Novak. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. And I didn't even know it. I was swimming in a swimming pool at this spa with her and didn't even know it, you know. And um, But there was uh, a clairvoyant that had this, like, castle there named Amy Sybil McPherson. And she was kind of famous. And they would go there, I don't know, to get some, you know, some kind of readings or something. And I remember there were people there that were talking about, even back then, that was in the late 50s, talking about UFOs and space beings. So I sort of had this, you know, what would you call it? Uh, (laughs) You know, I was around this kind of an influence Mm-hmm. And being in aviation and and everything and and I was always out at night looking at the night skies for a UFO, but all of that time I never saw one. And then uh, we moved from Lake Elsinore, which is in Southern California. It's it's inland. Uh, southern of Los Angeles and before you get to San Diego and my dad got a job here which is now up in the central coast at the airport here as a charter pilot and a flight instructor so we moved up here and I that's when I started my surfing career and uh, writing instrumentals and putting them putting surf uh, titles to them. And that was uh-huh. before the term surf music, instrumental surf music, was even coined. And I got to meet the ventures at the local auditorium here and played on the same bill with them as the Impacts. And uh-huh. I, was a, I was a fan of them. And um, so I was, you know, writing all these instrumentals and then uh, when we got discovered and taken down to L.A. and recorded the Wipeout album, I had all these surf tunes written. And then another group called The Challengers was doing the same thing and putting surfing terms to them. And then along came Dick Dale, and then it, it really took off. So I didn't really see any UFO the whole time. I was always looking for one and never saw one till I moved to Maui in 1973. I'll never forget, Mark. It was February 22nd of 1973. And you had brought up you know, the Hawaiian culture uh-huh. and uh, my whole thing about getting into the lost continent of Boo. Well, when 
I was living in Woodland Hills, and Jeff Cotton had quit Captain Beefheart's band and rejoined me. And we were playing these gigs. My band, HMS Bounty, had broken up, and we didn't have a name for the band. And I had this rented house up the canyon, one canyon over from Beefheart's house. And I was cleaning up the log bin in the around the fireplace, and I found this ancient book by James, Colonel James Churchward called The Lost Continent of Moo. And we all started reading it. The whole band did. And we became so, I guess, infatuated with this book. And in there it said that the Hawaiian Islands were part of the lost continent of Mu, that they were the mountain tops of this now submerged continent. And then I found further information that a lot of the South and even North American Indians in their legends, they claim to come from this submerged continent in the South Pacific. So all of a sudden, one day I was walking down the street and I had an epiphany and I went, moo. And I ran back to the house and told Jeff and Randy and Larry, the guys in the band, I said, I just got the name for our band. And they said, what is it? I said, moo, M-U. And they went, yeah, man, that's heavy. So I, you know, had been reading the book already. And we uh-huh. started reading that book from cover to cover like it was the Bible or something. And now what's interesting, oh, four or five years ago, I met Jack Churchward over the Internet, uh-huh. who was, uh, he's a writer too, and he took all of the stuff. Colonel Churchward was his grandfather, and he took a lot of his writings and have reissued them. So anyhow, long story short, we decided we were going to move to Moo, to Maui, and uh, our record company in L.A. and our promoter, uh, they were going, what, you're going to move to an island? But you got all of this going over here. And we were playing all the biggest places in L.A. And, you know, we were ready to do a second album. Our first Moo album had come out in 71 and getting a lot of airplay. And it got released in Europe also. And and uh, like I said, February 22nd of 1973, I'll never forget, we loaded our amplifiers and guitars and everything onto the airplane at LAX and flew to Maui. And we rented a house in the little town of Haiku, which had electricity, so we could, and it was near stores and things wasn't remote like the cabin I eventually built out in the jungle. And we uh, started playing on Maui, and an engineer and DJ named Barry Mayo heard us. And interestingly enough, 
He recorded Quicksilver's Just for Love album on the island of Oahu. And he put all of this equipment together himself to record that album for them. Well, he had a lot of equipment left that he got from Capitol Records. And when he heard us at this concert, he said, you guys are fantastic. Where do you live? And we hadn't been there that long. He said, I'd like to record you. So he came out to our house, and it had a porch that was enclosed with a glass window looking into the living room, and it was perfect. He put a table out on the porch that was enclosed, set up all the equipment, and he had a four-track tape recorder, and we recorded our second album there that ended up coming out called the last album by moo and um i got into as you know exploring the island looking for ruins of moo and Uh some some hawaiians showed me out in the jungle this one older guy named johnny kahamoi he showed me this trail that went down into this valley and it had these odd cut stone steps, Mark, looked like they'd been cut on a milling machine. This didn't look like anything the Hawaiians made. You know, the Hawaiians uh-huh. stuff is more stacked up lava boulders. And he said, you go down there, Merle, you find something. He said, I used to play down there when I was a little kid. He said, but my parents told me, don't go down there, Johnny. The Moo people will get you and take you away. And he was 80-some years old when he told me that. So I go down there, and I was amazed. There were these four pillars that looked like they had been sculpted or something. Mm -hmm. And they were about 30 feet, 35 feet tall. And there was this pristine waterfall in back of them. It looked like a scene out of an Indiana Jones movie. And there they were sitting on a cut stone platform. Then I noticed there was this like sidewalk that looked too modern to be, you know, old Hawaiian. And I followed it down to the ocean and I could see where it went under the ocean and out into the water and about 75 feet out, the lava flow had covered over it. And that lava flow was over a 1,000 years old, so I knew that those steps were older than that. They sent some people down there and carbon dated it, and they were Germans. They were German archaeologists, and it came back at over 10,000 years old. And then wow. I, I found a pyramid in the middle of Haleakala Crater at 10,000 feet that was half submerged by an ancient lava field there. And uh, I took a picture of it, and I didn't know. I gave it to a reporter at the Maui News. He put it in the paper and mentioned that I had found this. And then uh, there was a little knock on my door from one of the head rangers. 
at the crater and uh, you're not supposed to leave the trail and I risked my life jumping over a bunch of deep chasms to get close enough to this pyramid to get a picture of it and they said well we're not going to find you this again but don't don't ever try anything like that again because you could have just fallen down a bottomless pit and nobody would have known you were gone. But there are signs there that say, do not leave the trail. And then on the complete other side, I'll I'll break in a minute. I just have to tell you my other discovery that I found out in this lava flow on the uninhabited side of Maui past McKenna Beach, there's a trail that goes out through the lava flow, and there's a whole ruined city out there, and I took pictures of it, and all of this is in my book, Calling from a Star, the Merle Fankhauser story, and uh, the Hawaiians are even afraid to go out in that area. And I was talking about this with George Norrie on Coast to Coast one night, years, several years ago. And a couple that was vacationing on Maui heard me talking about it. And they were staying in Kihei, which is near where these ruins were. And uh, they emailed me. And they wanted to know how to get there and go out there. And I said, it's very dangerous. I had two other people go with me. You got to have good hiking boots on, and it gets very hot in that dried lava field. And I said, make sure you have hats and a lot of water. And uh, they went out there, and he emailed me back a few days later and said his wife got sunstroke. And he almost had to carry her back to the car and took her to the hospital. So, anyhow, that's my moo explorations. <laughs> well, well, it, it, uh, you know, the church word uh, books have you know maps where moo was you know, almost all the way across. The, the Pacific, you know, uh, Hawaii's j- just a small uh, remnant. Uh, but you also uh, have the uh, signals from Malibu CD that you released a few years ago that has a couple uh, songs that have these Recordings from the dome, what's called the dome off the coast of Malibu. Um, yes. Yeah. Was, was that somehow connected to Moo? You know, what, what, what are your opinions? What's on the background stories? We have to get those couple songs in too. Yeah, well, you know, <clears throat> there is some people that, think that Moo went all the way from where Hawaii is now to near the coast here. But uh, I can summarize that real quick. Um, 
Michael Luckman, who is a UFO, uh, he's written several books, and um, he got in touch with me and said that this old Army radio expert who was in the Second World War lived up in the hills of Malibu, and one night on his shortwave ham radio, he was talking to somebody in Australia, and these weird signals came in and was interrupting his signal and um, courted him. And he said they, he knew all kinds of code and everything, and he said they were unlike anything he had ever heard. And so Michael Luckman told him, you have to send these signals to Merle Fankhauser. So he sent them to me. And I listened to him, Mark, and I went, yeah, this is really strange. And I had an engineer friend of mine, Bob Edwards, who works for George Lucas, examine him. And he said there's actually three signals there, Merle. There's a carrier signal, and then there's another higher signal that's like a message and another mid-range serial signal so what i did mark i turned on the signals went in my recording studio and i sat down at the piano and here again it's another automatic writing situation i had the signals playing in my headphone mm -hmm. and i had a click track from a drum machine to keep me you know perfectly in time and this piano, eerie, spooky, gives me goosebumps now thinking about it. Piano part came out with the signals. And then uh, a friend that was playing in my band at the time that was a, an accomplished violinist, I wanted to put some violin with this. And he came in and he listened to that and he said, wait a minute. Now you're a concert pianist? Because it did sound like something, you know, you'd hear from a, a classical pianist. So mm -hmm. I wrote the song Signals from the Dome first because I found out that where these signals were coming from under the ocean a few miles out in about 700 feet of water was this odd dome-shaped building with pillars. And the pillars had an opening in the middle that was big enough to get something pretty large in and out of there. Well, for years, people had been seeing objects coming and going in the ocean and out of the ocean, USOs, uh -huh. at night there. This went clear back to the 40s. And there were even people that took pictures of them. And then people more recently took pictures of them with their cell phones. And people started sending these uh, when they found out I was working on this music. And then I noticed there was enough signals left to do another song. So I wrote a song called Signals from Malibu. And I put the signals in that song, too. And they come out quite loud on the end of messages from the dome. 
and um, interesting uh, that at some places uh, that had played that album when it came out, I think I told you this, the signals at the end of uh, Messages from the Dome shut digital mixing boards down, but it wouldn't affect a- analog equipment. Which And that happened in England with Joanna Summers' scales on her show. It happened in Boston, and it happened in Sacramento, and it happened in uh, Texas. So you want to take a chance and play these okay. two songs? <laughs> okay. okay, let's try uh signals and we'll get a flavor of the uh, uh, mysterious sounds yeah you should play them play them both but you can play one and we can talk about it
Okay, those signals do not sound like whales. Uh, yeah, well, that's what somebody yeah. said, and, and whales speak in those kind of tones. You know, they, they have a language that they use. I want to say something interesting about this before it <laughs> slips my mind. Bill McEwen and I were sitting in a restaurant in Malibu one day, and uh, uh, a fellow in there recognized me, and I could tell he was some sort of Native American. Well, the Shumash Indians lived up and down the coast here for several thousand years, and he was working as a security guard at a casino not too far from there, he turned around and he looked at me and he recognized me. And so he started telling me what albums of mine he had. And he said, what are you working on now? And I told him about the signals from Malibu. And he says, oh, yes. And he said, you know, there's a dome-shaped structure out there. And I'm going, wow, he knows about this. And he said, yeah, he said, it's a legend in our tribe when the ocean level was down, the Indians used to use it like a pier, the roof, and fish off of it. And uh, Bill Bill McEwen was sitting there with me, and he had this huge grin on, you know, like, <laughs> wow, this is really happening, you know. And uh, he says, yeah, you know, that they were the – the main Indian tribe that lived up and down the, the coast here. And I I just, uh, you know, had to mention that because it's, it's, you know, there's definitely something going on there. And then I did a radio show up here in San Luis Obispo, and we played these songs when the album came out. And... Uh, a lady called up and said she used to, uh, when she was a teenager in the uh, early 50s, her and her aunt used to go down. They lived in Malibu to the beach at night just to watch the lights go in and out of the ocean. So something's been happening there for quite a while, mm-hmm. and a lot of people believe that the opening at the front of that dome-shaped structure is UFOs go in and out of there. And there was even some talk of James Cameron was going to send some kind of robot sub down there to see what was in there, but I don't think that ever happened. But, um, yeah, if, if anybody gets the album Signals from Malibu by Merle Fankhauser, you'll see that dome-shaped structure. There's a picture of it on the cover, and you can type in Malibu Underwater Anomaly, at least you could a, a few years ago, and it'll come up on the computer. You've got the album, right, Mark? That's well, a good let's, one. Let's, let's play Signals from I mean, uh, messages Mess- from the dome, because that's the real, at the end, you hear this signal really clear. I liken it to 
a, a lady's high-pitched voice yodeling. And um, Bob Edwards, who examined that, he said, that's the thing right there that was wreaking havoc. Uh, he ran it through a spec- spectronometer. He said, that's the thing that wreaks havoc, havoc with the uh, digital components in a digital mixing board. And uh, the one board that got shut down in London, uh, the engineer got on the phone and uh, said that it it wiped out all the presets in the album, uh, in the uh, mixing board, and they had to have some technicians come back weeks later and fix the board. And it was all right. It just erased all their sets. Wow. Okay, so, so you know, let, let, let's hear messages from the Dome and Merle playing piano. Yeah.
Are you still there, Mark? Yes. All right. We didn't get knocked <laughs> off the air. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's and, uh, gr- gr- great to know that we survived <laughs> that. You know, Bar- Barbara has good equipment. So Yeah, yeah I, my hat's off to Barbara. Barbara, you're doing such a great <laughs> job, and it, it sounds – all of the songs have sounded so good. All the way here to California, coming out of my uh, my uh, phone here, and I do want to tell you about my only UFO sighting that I mentioned way back there. I didn't have one till I moved to Maui, and it was in 1974. And myself and my band Moo were at the top of Haleakala Crater on Maui, taking in the sunset. And the sun went down, and there were some tourists there. All of a sudden, this blue pulsating light came over the crater, and then it broke into two other lights and went off to the sides of it, and it formed a tetrahedron, an inverted pyramid. And we looked at this thing for a good four or five minutes, and all the tourists were just going, what is that? And, you know, I went, okay, we're finally seeing something. Then they all went back together as one and shot straight up and disappeared. So there's no way we could explain that away. And there was a older gentleman there that was in the Navy, and he said, all of my years in the Navy. I never saw anything like that. And so we drove down the the crater from 10,000 feet to our house in, in Haiku. And uh, I went in, turned on the tape recorder, picked up my acoustic guitar, and I wrote Calling from a Star. And uh, we did a slow version with on the second Moo album, but I did a more up-tempo version in 1978 in the studio in uh, L.A. And Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits is singing uh, harmony with me on it. And Gary Malabar from Steve Miller's band, the great drummer, is playing drums with me on it. And uh, that'll be a good good one to end our show with. Okay. Uh, I just want to thank you, Merle, for being such a captivating guest. And uh, let's just play the song. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see everyone, uh, I think, tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow's Barbara's doing a show. Yeah, I want to thank you and Barbara, too, for doing this. It's been yep. such a good show and so much 
fun doing this, and any developments on any of this, I, I will let you know, you know, in the sure. email, and at some point we might want to, you know, redo it, touch bases again. Yeah, that's fine with me. Any, All right, you're, warmest you're Aloha's planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, All right, Mark. Take, take, take care, Merle. Okay, you going to play Calling yeah. from a Star now? Yep. yep. I want to listen. I'm going to listen. Okay. Head for 